Hi, this is Jordan from the Orwell Foundation, the charity which runs the Orwell Youth Prize. The Orwell Youth Prize is an annual programme for students aged 12 to 18 and culminates in a writing prize. The prize and programmes around it introduce young people to the power of political language and provoke them to think critically about the world around them. We've teamed up with Compass to produce a new podcast series where all Youth Prize winners and runners-up discuss the themes emerging from their writing with leading politicians, activists, journalists and thinkers right here on the It's Bloody Complicated feed. From social housing to the power of dystopian fiction, subscribe to It's Bloody Complicated now to hear these urgent new political voices in conversation with the likes of John Harris, Dawn Butler and more. If you would like more information about the Orwell Youth Prize, visit our website at orwellfoundation.com. Welcome to It's Bloody Complicated, the Compass podcast. I'm Neil Lawson, your host and director of Compass. These are unprecedented times and we need to rise to the new and enormous challenges we now face. Over the next few weeks, we'll be speaking with writers, thinkers, politicians, journalists and public service workers about how we come out of this mess in much better shape than we went in, a good society after COVID-19. These conversations have live access for Compass members who can put their own questions directly to our guests. If you'd like to participate in the live call and help support all of our work, go to compassonline.org.uk forward slash podcast to join Compass today. Otherwise, sit back, relax and enjoy this week's podcast. This is the last podcast of the year. Stop cheering in the back seats. And we finish on a high. We finish two of the smartest, loveliest people who have been on the Compass journey with us from the year dot. Zoe Williams and John Harris, who both happen to work at The Guardian and about the best thing that happens at The Guardian, I think, between them. Neither of us work at The Guardian. We work no, for no. The no one works at The Guardian. No one works at The Guardian, that's true. Yeah. Oh, a Guardian email just came through on my phone, just as we said that. This is the spooky world that we live in these days. You say The Guardian and you get an email probably asking for money. And give The Guardian <laughs> money so that John Harris and Zoe Williams have got money to, to they do... They never the... give it to us. <laughs> they, they must give you a bit of it. I don't believe that they <laughs> don't give it. Speak for yourself, Zoe. <laughs> so we're going to look forward. We're going to look back. You've got both me and Francis on the call tonight. Francis is feeling a bit poorly because she's got COVID, but she's coming out of it. And apparently you can't catch COVID over Zoom calls, but we'll give it a go. No, we won't, obviously. Um, yeah, to look backwards and look forward. It's been some year and it's not over yet. Next year could be bigger, better, worse. Delete as appropriate. I feel like sort of like it ought to be a quiz or something about what was your favourite book of the year or... This is Francis's question. I'll ask it on her behalf before she comes in. And John says the answer to this is nothing, right? The first question is to John and then to, to Zoe as well. Did anything surprise you this year? And, and what did you think you got wrong, John, about what was going to happen? I can't even remember what happened this year. What was the big thing? Really, well, I, I, I tried to avoid being in the business of predicting things. I knew you was going to say that. A lot of political journalism, and I would uh, exempt Zoe from this as well, but a lot of political journalism is, is a bit like bookmaking. It's sort of about 
oh, who's got the most accurate poll? Is the bookie's favourite to win an election and all that stuff? And who's going to be up and down in six weeks or 12 weeks or any of that? And I don't think that gets you anywhere, really. There are a few things I've revised my opinion about. Is that is that sort of in the yeah. right area? Yeah, go on. Nuance. We like nuance in Compass. I feel like people are admitting they got stuff wrong. That's what I was getting at. I didn't get much wrong, really. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I... I was a bit standoffish about Extinction Rebellion and certainly about Insulate Britain for a long time, for all the usual cliched reasons that they were, perhaps they were alienating parts of the public that they needed to have on side and that as a consequence, you know, the issue of the climate emergency was getting clouded and all this other stuff. But in all the sort of noise building up to uh, COP26 and I suppose a lot of the noise around what Insulate Britain were doing and I still feel a bit weird about some of that stuff you know I mean all the obvious things the spectacle of people taking their mum to hospital and she can't get there because of someone lying in the road and all of that you know but I read a really good book which I was holding up a moment ago when Neil said what's your favourite book so this book is called I think even talking about this I might get myself arrested but it's called How to Blow Up a Pipeline (laughs) it's by a Swedish fella called Andreas Malm it's had quite a lot of attention it's I mean I actually know about it because I read about it in the Times Literary Supplement so presumably they've all got arrested already. But anyway, I mean, it sort of is about that, but it's about the necessity for direct action and civil disobedience in the midst of the climate emergency and, and really how politics, as it's currently constructed, can't really serve the interests of the planet. And it's really, really convincing read. It makes you think a great deal. It's got lots of brilliant examples of direct action. At one point, he writes about this campaign, which I didn't know about in Stockholm. He was involved in this. And people got in the habit of putting little bits of gravel in the tyre valves of SUVs. And if you screw them down with a little bit of gravel in it, what happens then is the tyres deflate. And they then put a notice in the windscreen, um, under the windscreen wiper of all these SUVs, saying you shouldn't be driving this car. Because I didn't know that SUVs put together are worse in carbon emissions terms than 75 countries in the world, right? So they did this. And what happened as a consequence of the coverage of them doing it is that everyone stopped buying SUVs in Sweden. It's full of things like that, right? And as a consequence, I, I thought fair play to people, really, if they want to lie in the road and, and, uh, and disrupt things and bring towns and cities to a standstill occasionally. I'm not sure what other option they've got. So that was one thing I changed my opinion about. So I, I don't know yet, because we've only had one answer before we hear from Zoe, but for me, the theme of the year is just the, is just the, the gap between, you know, what we need to happen and our democratic capacity and capability to do something about it. And I don't know if it's in the rear view mirror of an SUV or a, 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 or an electric vehicle, but sort of old politics and politicians seem so far back. Yeah, that was, well, that was really how I felt watching COP26. I was just thinking, well, because you were encouraged to sort of have some interest or faith in that and the idea that it might achieve something. And that whole thing, I mean, instantly was so demonstrably absurd. It brought all that into really sharp relief. Yeah. Go on, Zoe. What anything that you kind of revised well, your opinion of? Before I revise my opinion, can I just take a second to disagree with both of you? Yeah, yeah. Um, no. So I think I mean I don't disagree with John, but um I do think the whole I I always thought that Extinction Rebellion were on were, were sort of doing something more valuable than 
you know, the kind of narrative would have it, you know, there was always this kind of balancing their agenda against the people who would stop getting from their, from getting to their hospital appointments. And you were meant to go, oh, but they, you know, they've got to appeal to the widest possible amount of people while at the same time making their point really strongly. And are they getting that balance right? And should they keep out of rush hours and all the rest of it? But actually, um, what and, and this is what I thought when I interviewed the, the you know, nutty Rupert Reed at the very beginning. Sorry, am I allowed to call him that? <laughs> no, he's lovely, lovely Rupert Reed. Is he? A, is he? A, is he a? He's on the call. He's point? he's coming on. He's the next next presenter. Go on. As long as he's not in the in the audience, <laughs> can we just say lovely? Yeah, it's good that we don't live in a world where what you say gets a very wide audience instantly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, from the because I interviewed him like about this time last year, actually, when this debate was very live. Um, and what I got from it was, you know, a yes, lots and lots of that kind of direct action stuff, which does alter behavior much faster than you think it, it can. But B, the amount of kind of personal collective fulfillment you get from being part of something which has as its action something other than another meeting you know coming together with people with a with an action that isn't just another meeting and that it, it it's an extremely you know how do you get people from kind of inert annoyed you know atomized pinpricks into something important and that's as much as much for your own kind of personal growth as for societies yeah, and, it's, yeah. it, and it's through things like that. So I've always been really into Extinction Rebellion and Insulate Britain and all the rest of it. The thing I disagree with about how we, about looking at COP26 and, you know, the massive road you've got to climb from where we are to where we've got to get to. I think actually, if you look at the, I think the risk of that, of that frame is that you, is that you're just kind of flailing about in the kind of Gramsci new world yet to be born, old world dying thing. And you don't feel like, and, 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 and you're, what you're missing is that actually, in terms of the environment, in terms of the UK and the environment, the British government has known for a really long time what the next steps were. And the British government has been, has been committed since 2008 to taking those next steps. And the problem is not that we don't know how to get from where we are to where we need to go. The problem is that we've got like, a, we're being actively derailed by, a corrupt government right so so that's not like oh no how do we make the progressive case that will get us to the green nirvana it's how do we stop these bandits from stealing the future oh i think it's a lot more i think it's a bit more complicated than that see what i'm what i meant about cop 26 was there wasn't a single politician who arrived there really i mean there may have been from from a, a, a smaller country that doesn't have that much leverage over the negotiations right but there wasn't any politician who arrived there bearing a mandate to, to do what's required, even if they were paying lip service to that. That's not going to advance until you get some sense that millions and millions of people all over the world outside the usual circles are, okay. understand the sacrifices involved, want to make the moves. And, and, we're not there. and the reason we're not there is, is because of political failure, in my opinion. Well, if I don't understand what you mean they haven't got the mandate. I mean, anybody who's... You know, we've got the most, we've got some of the most far reaching climate legislation in the world and have had, and we haven't yet rode back from it. And it, it, you know, there isn't a lack of a mandate. It's been voted through, it's been voted through in Parliament. All they need to do is do it. 
there is a lack of there is a lack of action, and yeah, and yeah. it's uh, 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 and it's not just about what what legislation there is. I think what what John was pointing out was there's a whole bunch of behavioural things that we're going to have to go through. We're going to have to stop eating as much meat. We're going yeah, to stop. Not, we're, we're going to have to stop taking as many flights. You know, we're going to have to. So, I mean, so all of that, no one's confronting those deep but cultural, but, but, personal behavioural things, are they? Because I mean, there is a lack of leadership. Yeah, go no on, Zoe. Offense, you want to say something? Go on. No, no offence, but have you not read the Committee on Climate Change's roadmap to 2035? That's not the point. That's not the point. The but point is the point, John. I mean, it's not the point. You don't even know what I'm going to say. You literally don't have a clue what I'm going to say. Go on, go on, Zoe, go on, finish your point. It's got a really plain roadmap, which is much, much less, which, you know, you say we're all going to have to eat a lot less meat as though everybody's going to be confronted with this absolute tsunami of lifestyle change, which they never signed up to. Actually, the process is much, much, looking much more like meat-free days in different segments of, of population spend. I mean, it's looking much more like people doing kind of transport changes to transport of in the in the region of 15 percent it's not looking like the weird new world that you think nobody signed up to it's looking like demonstrable meeting of targets by 2035 with most of the burden taken by energy usage and infrastructure with most of the burden of net zero not being about individual behavior and so, you know, obviously we will all go along and change and a lot of us will change anyway because our kids will be vegan and it will be a pain in our ass and we'll just go along with it. But the truth is that actually something like 78% of the, of the targets to get to net zero are built into home insulation, infra, green infrastructure, renewable energy um, replacement. That's, I mean, you know, the... You can say that's not good enough. We need to completely rethink the, our relationship with the planet. And that's fine. I'm happy to do that too. But to say we're like miles and miles away and we don't know what we're doing or how to get there, it's just not right. I Well, I, I certainly wasn't arguing that we don't know how to get there. I mean, I've been listening to lots of business people and there's lots of business people who do know how to get there. Um, but the mixture of technological and behavioural change doesn't seem to be yet there seems to be a kind of common view at the scale necessary I mean we're heading in the right direction but there's a lot of work to be done and a lot of political leadership you know around, it's not, around it's all not, of that. see what I felt so a good example is um, as far as I recall this Keir Starmer's party conference speech given that this is the exis- this is the existential crisis to end all existential crises you know and it has to be pretty much I would argue you know the, the entire basis for politics as we know it, if you if you read that speech or you watch him make it, he doesn't mention climate change until about sort of five or six minutes in, as far as I recall. It certainly wasn't a speech predicated on it. There isn't a mainstream there isn't a mainstream politician in the world, as far as I know, who who routinely makes speeches that says this is it, this is the totality of what we have to do, and it requires huge system change and changes to everybody's lives. That doesn't exist, and in that sense, no one's got a mandate. I think that's. Listen, two thirds of global GDP, two thirds of it is now under a net zero target. So you you say nobody's got a mandate. You're looking at two thirds of all the world's assets (laughs) and money is under governments with a net zero by 2050. So what we're being 
really made me think there are a lot of governments hell-bent on derailing it not least our own current government I am very worried. I'm very why, worried. Why have they got space to derail it? Because of oh, the thick time. But, the aren't, but, but, but listen, the, the idea that nobody's got a mandate when the majority of, of actual global assets are already under governments which have a net zero target is huge. It's massive. Again, again I mean, I, th I think it's a lot, going to be a lot more to do with consumers and businesses than it is um, uh, government. I mean, people were saying to me that even if Trump gets back in, he's got billions, but the market's got trillions. It's kind of where, you know, where is the power to do this stuff? Let's, let's just go run back to, I mean, John was mentioning the um, uh, Starmer speech. Can, can you, rem I mean, you're good at remembering stuff, Zoe. Do you remember what he said? What was he said? I can't remember anything about it. Which speech are you talking about? The Starmer speech at, at party conference. If he didn't mention the environment. Oh, in what, in September? Yeah, I mean, what did he what, say? The eye what, on what, the object. What, what, the what eye was... on the object. Behold, the eye on the object. It sounded like teenage poetry. It was weird. Um, well, well, and where, where do you think he's got to? Well, look, I mean, year? I don't agree. I, I don't... I was underwhelmed by that speech. I, there, things did... Something major happened in vis-a-vis -vis the environment at that conference because... Rachel Reeves announced her 28 billion, God, God almighty, was it 28 billion? Was it 280 billion? She basically announced this- Big plan. number. She, she announced this large number over some years in all, in, which was basically, you know, the Conservatives and Labour are in agreement with, about the net zero target, but where they disagree is whether you leave it to the market or you, or you put it under, or the state generates it. Now, it seems pretty obvious to me that since like 38% of emissions are coming from housing stock, the government has to step in and sort it out. So a, a Tory net zero target is meaningless as far as I'm concerned. But Rachel Reeves did make a decent, solid net zero target. You know, who knows? Who knows? But who knows? Out in the real world, they could say 28, 29, 35, 46, 500. Nobody knows any of this stuff. It's not <laughs> foregrounded. There's, there's no, there's no, there's no, there's no, there's no, emo, there's no emo. Arguably, arguably, the job of the work of foregrounding it is for people who care about it to talk about it and understand oh, it's it, work, it's rather work than say it's not loud enough. No, I don't agree with that. Well, what, what, what do you want? What do you? Well, they, clearly, the Labour Party doesn't have a set of ideas and a narrative and a story about this country and the future of the world. Oh, which sure, is sure. No, I mean, which I was, which I was uh, trying to, which I was I trying to agree with that. Which I was I trying to get. That, I do disagree with the stuff on the environment because I think, I, you know, Reeves is good on the environment. Loads of people in, loads of people in that shadow cabinet are good on the environment. But they're clearly um, not. But they're clearly not because when I walk out the house in the morning and I talk to people I know about politics and their understanding of it, they don't know about any of this stuff at all because it's it's buried. There's no there's no vivid, clear, motivating, emotional story around it. With respect, it's a bit more complicated than that, isn't it? I mean, until well, you've got until you've got a kind of coherent narrative, there are things people won't pick up. And they're not going to sift through the, the kind of footnotes of speeches and they're not going to remember one conference from the next. So in, so I completely agree with you. I don't think that there is a clear narrative for the future coming out of the Labour Party. Nobody does. But that does not necessarily follow that nobody in the shadow cabinet has any clue what to do about, no, the, no. about the green stuff. No, but you're not and clearly you're not, not going to get very far without no, those elements you just talked really about. Good. It doesn't it depend then whether or not anything coheres from now. 
you know, you can't just say they're net, they're not anywhere now because nobody's heard of it and they're never going to get anywhere because they're not anywhere now. So where, so this is spiky. Um, so where, <laughs> where, where does, you know, where are you, Zoe, where are you looking for, for, you know, optimism, hope for, you know, 2022 20, and beyond? I mean, oh, you know, I mean, do, you, do you think, do you think, start, you know, I mean, people are, you know, it's not just Labour, but, you know, the Greens, the Liberal Democrats, other forces, where are you, where are you looking for inspiration? Well, I mean, to, to go back to um, your original question, Francis, <laughs> and what I've been surprised by, I mean, I, like, and what I've revised my opinion on, I'm, I have revised my opinion on Labour, I did think, I did think something good was going to happen, not this time last year. This time last year, I was already disappointed. But when Keir Starmer got in, I did think it was going to be much more. I thought I thought there was going to be ideological continuity, but, you know, more just something a bit more. What if what if French politicians always go on about, you know, radicalism in a neat suit? Um, I, I thought it was I thought I thought Keir and McDonnell were thick as thieves. I thought they were going to make something work between the two of them. I thought they were I thought all the people who were put off by the by the kind of appearance of counterculturalism were going to be brought un, into, back into the fold by the look of respectability. But I thought the platform was going to remain the same. And you, and I, I think a lot of members did think that. <laughs> um, and and I remember you you know at the time Neil saying don't be an idiot, <laughs> um, and that you'd been through this with Miliband and before that with Brown and the Labour right always finds a way to to win. But I I thought the Labour right was so depleted and hopeless, and you know empty not depleted in their ranks but depleted in their energy and ideas that I thought we were going, I didn't think there was any chance of them kind of taking over the Keir operation and turning it into what it became. And it's been, you know, not just, I haven't just revised my opinion, I've been kind of devastated by it. And, um, and I feel, I really keenly feel the hubris of having supported a leadership candidate in the first place. It's like, what an idiot to think that I, that I could ever have, you know, uh, it, it could I could ever have known what the cross currents were and how powerful they were. Your only consolation, though, is that I've been an idiot more often. I kind <laughs> of, you know, I just I just lost kind of illusions. Hopefully, without being disillusioned, you know, a, a, a while a while ago. And I've been amazed. I mean, I, I've been amazed about how cynical they are. I mean, breathtakingly cynical. Yeah, I know. In terms of their operation, John, are you are you surprised about their, you know, where they've ended up, or do you, really? No. I'm not, I mean, I, you know, I'm sort of interested. I don't, I can't really explain my relationship with the Labour Party because it's. Are you still it's, a member? Are you still a member? I, think I am, yeah. Yeah. I, think I am, yeah. I get things through the door occasionally and they take about six quid off me every now and again. Do they uh, still think you're a student? No, I think I, I pay monthly. <laughs> but I don't, I mean, I have this sort of, it, I don't know, kind of slightly emotional interest rooted in the way I was brought up in it. and it remains the only sort of chance we've got, I suppose, in the short term. So, you know, a part of me felt quite lifted when I saw that they pulled ahead in the polls recently, you know, the sort of more emotional side of me, I guess. But my complaint with, with the Labour Party remains much the same as it ever has, really, which is that it's very rare that it's, it, it's open to anyone outside its own ranks. 
which which in an era like ours makes the job of achieving any change almost impossible. It's collectively never really all that interested in ideas. Um, there have been occasions in the recent past when it showed signs. I thought some of the sort of economic thinking around John McDonnell at the time was quite interesting, but it sort of reverted to type. And I don't know whether it's reverted to type partly along a sort of left-right axis, but it's also reverted to type in it just being vote Labour, 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 Labour. Labour's good for you. Come on, vote Labour. What's the matter with you? Don't vote Tory, vote Labour. There's, there's no kind of content. And so as cheered as I am that Keir Starmer seems to be ahead, notwithstanding the fact that I don't think he's got a cat in hell's chance of winning the election single-handed, all of those usual caveats remain. I still don't really know what the Labour Party's there to do. And the Labour Party feels like an institution which is very out of time with the way that most of the interesting people I meet think about politics, which is much more pluralistic and open and like this conversation is, you know, welcomes disagreement and all that. And the Labour Party always, even in the Corbyn period, has been pretty hopeless at all that stuff. Can I just ask a follow-up question to that, John, which is someone in the chat saying, which I have a lot of sympathy with, that the Labour Party have too wide a remit to please everyone. So what I'm interested in is this question of, A, what do you think the Labour Party needs to compromise on, if, if anything. And also, how do they do that, shifting effortlessly to talk about progressive I alliance don't, I don't know with, the the, with an alliance-based I'm focus. not interested, honestly, I'm not interested enough or knowledgeable enough about the state of play in the modern Labour Party to even get close to having an answer to any of those questions. But the, you don't, you don't have to be internally. I mean, the last part, I have to be honest, what, what the last part is sort of indifferent. Because yeah. the, the Labour Party makes me indifferent. I'm not that interested in it. To me, it's a part of the conversation which probably occurs sort of three or four steps down the line. The first conversation I think is about, you know, I think it's much more interesting and productive perhaps to talk about the way that the pandemic has changed people's idea about the individual and the state and how they how they operate within society and their own agency and all the rest of it. And I think very interesting things have happened on that score in the last two years. And if you talk about those first and where they might go, you then might get an idea of what the Labour Party has to respond to and how it might be forced to change. Beginning, beginning the conversation with Rachel Reeves or whoever is the new shadow foreign secretary or whatever it is, you know, just seems to me to be ludicrously mechanistic and away from where the action is. I'm not, it, it leaves me cold. I don't care really. But Okay, a couple of things. There are, yes, there are more interesting conversations to have than what the Labour Party's actual programme should be. And definitely nobody wants to go, I mean, even the, not even the MPs themselves want to go into a meeting saying we would have this policy on bus fares. Or if they do want to go into a meeting saying that, then they're stupid. But there is, the question is well put, which is, you know, they have got a very large constituency and they're finding it very hard to hold it together. And they're finding it very, very difficult to say the right thing, which ignites the, the places that they have to ignite. And the kind of big block of the commentary act tends to say this means they're finished, you know, because they can't possibly please the left behind person in Skegness at the same time as the student in Canterbury, at the same time as the refugee campaigner in Kent, because they can't possibly please all these, I could do another list, but it would be boring for us, then they are finished as a political force. And I think that the, the reason that is wrong is that actually when, when they start to come here and they start to gain traction, 
in different constituencies it's when they it's when their platform is economic right so they actually can they do manage quite well when they come out and say wages are too low student debt is bullshit and we need a plan for this thing well, they said that the in 2019 and they got the thump into end all thumpings well no i mean they said the problem with 2019 and i know i've said this before i don't want to bore everyone but they were trying to ride two horses. They were trying to pretend to be two things at once. And that doesn't, that just doesn't work. You know, Boris, the Conservatives were trying to pretend to be one thing really, really, really convincingly. And oh, I don't, I don't see it. See, I don't really but see you know, it. But, but John, you know, they, they did the two years beforehand. They was the time when they were making their financial iteration in a kind of novel. I don't, and I don't think in the well. context of it, but in the context of a party from the industrial age, which, th which still thinks that single-handedly it's going to change everything, right? Sorry, and its mentality is not, it's, its mentality hasn't changed. Its idea of who it serves fundamentally hasn't changed. Well, its idea of what politics is hasn't changed. So it's completely out of time. And so right, talking, about, hey, talking about the iteration of its economic policy or who's in the shadow cabinet, to me, that's almost like angels on the head of a pin. And the thing is, is that you talk in these abstractions and then I'm if abstract. anybody tries to bring it to anything concrete, you get annoyed. Like you have to, you can't just talk in abstracts forever. You can't say, oh, it's an industrial age. But, but that, it's got that, an enemy. It's a head of a pin. I mean, at some point you have to say, what concrete thing would, what, could somebody say in this situation to have... I don't know, but the first, the first, the first, to my mind, I mean, God knows, we, you know, a lot of people I know, including Neil, and you have been having this conversation for long enough. Essentially, the first question has to be, why is the Labour Party so incapable and has been for a long, long, long time of amassing a, a big enough electoral coalition and making people feel involved enough in what it wants to do to society to give us at least the prospect of the kind of social change, admittedly, which would be very different because we're in a different time, that we saw in 1945, right? I mean, that, that to my mind, particularly as all of these questions are getting more and more urgent and the pandemic has accelerated that process, that's the first question, right? And that inevitably takes you into questions about what the Labour Party is, who it thinks it's there to serve, what its approach to politics is, how it understands itself and people outside it and all of that. And that's where the conversation has to start, right? And that's the conversation I'm interested in having. I don't think it's abstract at all. I think that's really well, urgent that, and direct. That isn't abstract. That isn't abstract. But but like the, what what really bugs me is this kind of very these very large statements about the Labour Party finding it impossible to do this thing because they're wedged in some impossible time and they will never be able to. As things are currently constructed, that's the case. Yes. Well, okay. nobody look whether it's or not. It's the case. I would require it to be expressed in a more concrete and meaningful way before I could even agree whether it was worth talking about so we'll go over to gabriel in a minute and see if the people in the audience can uh, get some development of this stuff but just you know one concrete thing zoe was the the vote on pr what is oh, yeah, yeah. what does that what does that tell us about the kind of things that john was just speaking to about <laughs> about labor's you know at, at least at the, it's very hard not at least membership base you know but it's very hard that it doesn't want to do the kind of things that john was speaking to Sorry, I'm, I'm laughing because I've been lobbied all week by people asking me to talk about PR this meeting. And I thought I mustn't forget, but they obviously got to you too. Oh, no, no, no one spoke to me about that. But fill, fill your boots. I think Laura Parker, whose dad is in the audience, has got to you, Neil, and you might as well just admit it. 
<laughs> no one did. No one did. I just think I, I think it's, it's, a large it's a donation from Laura's dad. It's, a, it's, a, it's a concrete example. You know, it's, it's a, a, an actual policy thing. And it seems to tell me reams about the party. What does it tell you? Well, look, I mean, th this has been the expense. Here I will agree that there is de definitely a problem. There is a persistent problem where I often disagree with the narrative is that the problem is always the same and always has been the same for the Labour Party since 97 and probably since 84, 83 before that. Um, you know, they, they, to my mind, it's, it's a set of very discrete problems that just happen to all be as bad as each other. Um, but here, you know, it is a problem. It is a problem that most CLPs voted for to bring that PR motion to conference. It is a problem that the energy is really there for both voter reform and progressive alliance. And that's where the that's where the activists such as they are are. And that's where everybody that's where the energy that's where the kind of energy for people who want to create change with the meetings that they're in, that's where they are. And the Labour Party sees Keir Starmer's current Labour Party sees those people as a pain in the ass, just like Corbyn's Labour Party saw Remainers as a pain in the ass, just like fucking Miliband's Labour Party saw people who were anti-austerity, saw Sisters Uncut and UK Uncut as a pain in the ass. You know, they see anything generative and um, pro-social and actually considered, which might be able to connect to people who aren't that interested in politics, but are sure as hell are affected by it. And they immediately feel disheartened and like they have to close it down. And, and, and this is, yeah, for sure, that's problematic. And for sure, would I prefer a Labour leadership that A, accepted the inevitability of a progressive alliance, B, accepted the actual proud history of progressive alliance manoeuvres in, in every Labour victory there's ever been, and C, accepted and campaigned for voting reform once they got in? Yes, I would prefer that. <laughs> and, and, and it's a great answer. And, and John, just before we go over to Gabriel, I mean, that, that as a surprise, that, that vote surprised me. 80% of Labour Party members, CLPs, backing PR. Yeah, yeah, of course. So they're out of step with even their own members, but they still can't get it together to, to do anything to enhance the prospect of the Tories losing the North Shropshire by-election. You know, I mean, that's, still a, that's a complete mess. That, as far as I understand it, to talk mechanistically about such things, um, at national level, there was some attempt to get an agreement about the old Bexley and Sidcup by-election being for the Labour Party and the North Shropshire one being for the Lib Dems, but on the ground, it hasn't come to anything. Someone's just said in the panel it, and they said they don't want to hear despair. And I'm, the, I'm reason not despair. I, the reason I don't really get off on talking about the Labour Party too often, and certainly not in any any great details, because it, 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 it gives the impression of despair. But there's lots of things going on politically that I, that I don't feel despair about at all. I yeah. feel a reverse. I feel a really hopeful and inspirational. I suppose it's just some sort of indication of how uh, hopeless the Labour Party very often is, that most of those don't involve the Labour Party. That's all. Yeah. I hope you're enjoying the conversation so far. It's Bloody Complicated is brought to you by Compass and is made possible by the support of our amazing members, like Clive. Here's Clive on why he joined the Compass community. My name's Clive Lewis. I'm a Labour MP for Norwich South. I've been involved with Compass for seven years or more and a member for a few years now. My involvement with Compass first started because it was the first left-wing organisation I saw that was really pushing forward the environmental agenda. This was, this was years ahead 
of anything that was being talked about in Labour at the time. And I thought it was fantastic. I keep supporting Compass today because it's a refuge in a, in a, in a political environment, which to be quite frank, is extremely tribal, it's extremely difficult. It's the culture of Compass. It's about asking difficult questions and acknowledging that there will be differences. But actually those differences are a strength, not a weakness. You can be in any faction of the Labour Party or any faction of the Green Party or the Liberal Democrats or any other progressive organisation or in no political party. Just someone who's interested in the world around them and wants to see the world change for the better. It's where I get my political sustenance from and, and it means a lot to me to be a part of that community. And that's why I would wholeheartedly endorse it to you. Find out more about joining the Compass community at compassonline.org.uk slash podcast. And now, back to the conversation. The bed blocker that we need to get round over through, etc. Let's come back to the hopeful stuff, but that might come out of the questions as well. Gabriel, get some more people in. Thanks, Neil. Okay, the first question comes from Sarah and Peter Vaughan. Hi there. Um, it's a question really for John, because I've really enjoyed following his travels around the country when you talk to people in particular places. Thank you. And I was wondering, um, although that wouldn't have been your specific question, I'm sure, but whether you picked up any feel for whether people have an understanding of our electoral system, our first past the post, or if they do, if they even care about it, because... About changing it, you mean? Yeah, I mean, do, how, do, how, do we, how do we raise awareness of our electoral system and just how unfair it is? So the first thing to say is, I think a hell of a lot of people understand that there's something weird about the electoral system in the sense that they constantly have to try and game it and very often vote for not their first choice candidate and all that and the amount of tactical voting on the left and the right actually that has gone on in recent years suggests that people know that there's something not right about the system i mean people have been, as we all know people have been banging on about changing it for decades i mean i remember those old st i'm mean, old enough to Remember those old SDP party political broadcasts where John Cleese from Monty Python used to stand in front of a blackboard and explain why first past the post was so awful. And, you know, very often all this is reducible to the cliche of, oh, it doesn't come up on the doorstep and all the rest of it. There have been flashes of hope on that score. I can't remember exactly why. Maybe Neil would remind us about this. There was a campaign to change the electoral system at one point that included figures from the Labour Party, Caroline Lewis and Nigel Farage in the days when he had so toxified himself that there was no chance of him getting invited. He was there as well. Or maybe that was the AV referendum. That was the AV referendum. Yeah, okay. So there have been occasions when it's sort of, it's been around and it's been an issue and it's kind of been in the culture. I mean, to slightly contradict myself and, and talk about the Labour Party's policy, I think the point is that's the, that's the first place you have to look. Clearly, until it's in the political mainstream, in the form of one or other of, of the two, unfortunately, in my opinion, main parties, wanting to change the system and speaking, you know, very vividly about how much it distorts politics and how much it means that the right issues don't rise to the surface and all that. I'm not sure you're going to get very far, but I suppose that's why at Labour Party conference, the fact that that many people were behind PR gives us cause for hope. I mean, it's very hard now, isn't it, to find any Labour politician who, who will really even attempt a coherent and rational defence of first past the post. What they usually do is just um and ah and, and, and not really want to go near the issue. So I think things have moved. They just haven't moved far enough yet. 
Brilliant. Thanks, John. And thanks, Sarah. Uh, let's take a group of questions together. And the first one of those comes from Claire. My question really follows on um, from the previous one. Um, that was really good. Um, in a nutshell, because the Labour Party clearly know this is an issue and have just been dancing around it for so long, how, how do we, in our sort of little political circles, in our bubbles, and also the, I'm sure we all are members of wider overlapping civil society groups, how do we actually apply pressure to the Labour Party that is blocking the issue? Like, how do we actually get this done? Because I think this is an emergency. My, my answer is really simple, which would be if you cannot vote Labour without um, getting a Tory in, you should think about not voting Labour occasionally. That's my answer. I, I vote for the Green Party, Riley, because the Green, the Green Party's stance on electoral reform is really, really good. And the Green Party could do with more support and more votes. So given the opportunity without letting a Tory in, I vote for it. Well, I mean, Neil knows a lot more about this than I do, but it, it seems to me that what works when the party is blocking or ignoring the, the need for progressive alliances in the first instance, because as somebody said in the chat, Labour's never going to get in with, under first past the post, but it has to believe it can get in under first past the post, because whether it signs up for PR or not, it needs to get in before it can enact it. So it, you, the progressive alliance really is the, is the horse element and the and PR is the car, and then they can swap over and both be horses afterwards. The, it, it, it does strike me, and this was certainly true in 2017, that people would do local alliances. So Clive Lewis was really helpful to his adjacent Green candidate. Um, there were camp, there were Labour people in Surrey working for Lib Dems, they're, they're not working professionally, <laughs> campaigning for Lib Dems. Um, and they just had to go round the party machine. And, you know, this, I was much closer to that lotto than this one. And so I saw the horrible things that they were saying about them. But they, in the end, they didn't have the energy to stop it. And it did generate a, a large amount of um, collective action so that the, the candidate most likely to beat the Tory won in more seats than you were expecting. Most of the time that played for Labour. Sometimes it played for the Lib Dems but it, it, it did work. I don't think, I don't think endlessly, I mean, I'm in favor of sending motions to conference, but I don't think endlessly organizing and mustering around conference is the way to do it. So all of that is, um, yeah, I mean, that's all happening. We know that this kind of, as you said, the below the radar um, deals are happening and local groups are coordinating. Um, and at a local level, we've got quite a lot of political coordination that actually is effective and works well in some surprising places, for example, Southwest Surrey, why I am. But I suppose another way of rephrasing my question was, how do we get the Labour Party to come to the table? And I don't mean by, you know, endlessly putting motions to conference, but how do we actually, as, as a society, get them to say, we will sit down with the Greens, the Lib Dems, the Scots, the Welsh, anybody who actually, you know, we want to talk to, maybe not Nigel Farage, <laughs> and talk to them about forming a way of actually getting elected because we all need to hashtag take back control but that's not going to happen unless everybody sits around a table and talks so about it. let me just jump in there really quickly Claire I mean the, the, what you'll see evolving from compass in the new year is a kind of double-headed strategy firstly go for candidates if the leadership won't change then go for candidates and we know from 2017 how much candidates want support in their constituency, they want deals done to help them. We're really good at doing that stuff. So that's gonna be one way of pressing 
candidates. You know, so you have a body of candidates in the new parliament who will vote for PR, et cetera, et cetera. And the other great lesson of, 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 of Labour and pressure is the Scottish Constitutional Convention, yeah, that's which really stopped Tony Blair getting rid of the commitment to a, a, a Scottish Parliament. It was a social movement which had force and had bite and meant that, that they couldn't row back on that promise. So a combination of those things can begin to manoeuvre Labour into a position where it'll open up to a much more plural politics in which Greens, Liberal Democrats and others you know, can benefit. Because we're not going to go through that abusive, you know, we're the least worst option, vote for us. And we don't care, you know, and we don't care what you think of us afterwards, because we're just going to be just as nasty and horrible, because we don't want to do that again. So, you know, we're looking at a strategy to go through that. Back over to you, Gabriel. Thanks, Thanks, Neil. And thanks, Claire. Uh, okay, the next question comes from Rebecca Warren. Rebecca? Um, I, I, st I stuck a comment in, in, in the chat earlier um, saying, why are, we, why are we talking just about the Labour Party? They're not actually in power. Um, I think possibly the answer there is that it isn't worth talking about the government because none of us are in any position at all to influence them. But I will, I will ask my question anyway, because I, I thought of this before, before, the, um, before this um, session started. There are many calls for Boris Johnson to go, and rightly so. He is, among many other things, completely incompetent in a crisis. If you want more examples of um, what's wrong with him, um, see the Observer M editorial from last Sunday. But who will replace him? It's unlikely to be somebody more chaotic. They could hardly be more chaotic, but they may well be more aggressive. And to give them um, specific examples, um, yeah, so someone was commenting on Liz Truss in, in the um, Evening Standard last week, saying she was making imperialistic statements, which are obviously intended to um, appeal to Tory members. Or, or I think of Dominic Raab today um, undermining the Human Rights Act. So we could well end up with someone who's even worse. Yeah, we could, yeah. Although it'd be hard to conceive of anything worse than this, <laughs> I suppose. What's the, what's the question? Who should, who should it be, isn't it? Is it, is it? Rebecca, do you want to know who would be the best Tory leader to beat or who would be the best to live under? I think the best to live under, really. I don't think there is one that's good to live under. I genuinely don't. I mean, but, you know, yeah, yeah, people, yeah, yeah, I agree with that. They, 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 you know, people were, people were, last night, I was at an event, people were talking about Tom Tugendhat as like a kind of restitution of sense and humanity to the Tory party. But I would be so angry. <laughs> oh, actually, <laughs> to I, live can I can think of someone. Who? If it was a gun to my head, I mean, all of these options are absolutely awful. But if I had to choose somebody, who would make life a little bit more bearable, I would probably say Jeremy Hunt. There you go. He, he strikes me as one of the few conservative politicians who still has some influence in the party, who it doesn't feel the tug of the Steve Baker, Jacob Rees-Mogg, brexit -y, pretend libertarian faction. In fact, he positions himself against them. So if you're, if you're going to go into a, into a sort of desiccated, slightly boring reading of where people are and have to pick someone, I suppose that's it. But there's been the huge change that's happened in conservative politics, notwithstanding the fact that every conservative government ever, certainly post Thatcher, has been an awful thing for the country. The purging of the sort of Kenneth Clark, pro-European, more centrist sort of element of the Conservative Party, which happened in the immediate aftermath of Brexit, when Johnson um, threw out however many MPs it was, you know, and they all, they all disappeared. That's a big political change. And in the absence of those people, because some of those red wall Tory MPs, some of whom I think have sort of quite interesting ideas about some things, they haven't got much clout. And so the element of the Tory party, which is really pulling at Boris Johnson all the time, is the element of the Tory party, which currently has had the whip hand for the last 20 or 30 years. And it's the same part 
that John Major called bastards. You know, it's these really, really crazy, far out right wing, anti-EU, insanely, supposedly libertarian, but they're not libertarian in the sense that they're all right with voter ID and 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 everything in the in the uh, in the policing and, and sentencing bill and all the rest of it. But they style themselves as being pro-freedom. And I find those people terrifying. And, yeah, and, and, and they, on a lot of things, they've got the whip hand, you know. The problem is, is that if we were to say, okay, magic wand, and I'm going to ignore the Harold Macmillan suggestion in the comments. If we were going to say magic wand, we just restore the Tory party to the so-called reasonable Tory, the, you know, the, the kind of baby Ken Clark, whoever baby Ken Clark is, is probably, probably is Tom Tugendhat actually. We, 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 you know, we return to a kind of one nation Toryism in which they, they're not destructive, they're not but but you know you, you, what you'd be what you'd be left with is a, is and then you make that person a kind of plausible electoral candidate and then you have an election and then they win what you're left with is a government that looked conservative but was actually extremely radical in term, in in terms of Cameron Osborne you know economically extremely radical and extremely radical in its treat in its conception of the state seeking into governments that were hardline kind of anti-EU fanatics and did, you know, a great act of sabotage in pursuit of that, seeking back to an apparently reasonable conservative. Now, they, now you know, that, that would be hard to swallow, you know. I would find it hard to list Jeremy Hunt or Tom Tugendhat's qualities and feel happy to be governed by such a person when the party itself... I'm not talking about, been, I'm just talking it's, about it's, less it's, unhappy, just slightly less unhappy. I'm not feeling that, that I'm, I'm being run by people who are sort of politically unhinged. That's all. Well, it's, I mean, it doesn't mean that any, any of the, you know, we all know what the Conservative Party's there, there to do. It's there to protect huge vested interests and, and maintain... The, the capitalist way we've had of running things for the last 30 years, broadly in the same shape it, it ever has been. That's what they're there to do. I've got What's no that about that. I just, I just, if you ask me, I think it would be a, a, a fraction more bearable to live with Jeremy Hunt as the Prime Minister than it would with contemptuous, selfish, awful Boris Johnson, who feels that he owes Jacob Rees-Mogg and Steve Baker and Mark Francois lots of favours. That's just not, it strikes me as an objective political fact. It would be slightly more bearable. I'm not saying it would be brilliant. Slightly, fractionally, but it's like it's like <laughs> arguing over who's going to manage a Bulls team, isn't it? You're like, I don't care. Uh, the, the other thing that just what history teaches us to go back to 45, and this is very difficult with the Conservative Party in the state that it's been post Thatcher, is that very often historically progressive change of any kind doesn't materialise unless you have a few Tories on board. I mean, that's that's unfortunate. Oh, yeah, yeah, but you're more likely to get Tories on board. If they, if their own government is, it just doesn't doesn't represent anything that they can get behind. I mean, you know, we, you're much more likely to get Tories on board with the Labour project if they're led by Dominic Raab, because that's going to leave a load of politically homeless Tories. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, there, are, there are just there are a few Conservatives I meet from time to time. I happen to be in the Conservative Party. You have quite interesting things to say. There's a woman called Abby Brown, who's leader of Stoke on Trent City Council, for example who is doing really interesting things there and is a really interesting person to talk to. I don't think she's got much in common with me in terms of sort of basic ideology or anything like that, but she's quite interesting. And some of those, as I said earlier, some of those red wall people, for all the fact that I disagree with them on lots and lots of fundamental things, just seem to me to have a few interesting things to say and they might be worth engaging with. But I guess we live in a political culture that doesn't really allow for that anymore.
Because they're, they're, they're engaged they're with them. Just don't put them in charge. They want, to, they want to privatize your grandma and all that, you know. And that, and some of that, obviously, a lot of that is rooted in fact. But I, I'd quite like to have a politics that is sufficiently open to do that. I mean, I remember going to Compass things and Philip Blond, Cameron's chief philosopher, was around and he was saying quite interesting stuff. And I like listening to him. And I kind of miss that, I think. Well, yeah, 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 of course. But nobody's saying, John, that you're never allowed to talk to a Tory again. That's not the point at all. The point is, is that if, do you want them to no longer be in charge or, or, or not? And you know, after they're no longer in charge, you can still talk to the leader of the council. You can still say you can you can still listen to interesting ideas. Is there anyone on this call who doesn't want the Tories to be in charge? That's a given, isn't it? Surely. Well, we spent a lot of time talking about why Jeremy Hunt would be good at doing it for people who don't want it. Well, I just think that's just an interesting thing to think about, you know. And 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 in terms of where the country might be going, it might be better if there were more people like Jeremy Hunt around, less people like Steve Baker and Jacob Rees-Mogg. Well, let's get one final question. The truth is that Boris will either recover or he'll be replaced. It will not stay static, you know, and I think that's the assumption of a lot of people. that We can just sit there and, and watch them, you know, die in a ditch. And then, you know, I don't see that happening. No, and that's won't. why I want to kind of, you know, think about what the political response and strategy is to the Conservatives, either when they revive under Boris or they revive under someone else. Go on, Gabriel. OK, one more question. We, the conversation started talking about the environment. And so let's end it that way. This question comes from Mick Bradley. Yeah, thanks. Um, the, the, the shorthand question is, can a Green New Deal bring progressive forces together? I mean, really, I'm thinking of the political parties because the Greens have supported this for, for years. The Lib Dems had a Green Deal in their manifesto back in 2010. Labour did last time. It seems the one area where you create lots of jobs, you get growth, you actually do something about fuel poverty, our leaky homes, you actually make a real difference in terms of carbon reduction. Um, what's, you know, what's not good about it is that, and, and it seems a struggle in many other areas to quite pull people together. So is that not the best opportunity it's a covid recovery as well of course isn't it it's it's that kind of way forward yeah who's going to answer that first is the question will a green new deal enhance a progressive alliance is that the is that the idea yeah answer that question because that's really relevant to us yeah i mean definitely the thing is the only the only thing that would kind of derail a really kind of you know beautiful friendship between certainly between Labour and the Greens on the Green New Deal would be a the Labour Party ignoring like just finding it too hard to cooperate and b the Green Party saying this was our idea <laughs> which I think the Green Party is too mature to do and I don't think they're going to but I do think the Labour Party has some you know it, it, it does have to have a word of itself on on being able to have a mature conversation with other parties. And that goes for all the other progressive parties, you know, they, they, they haven't found the language and they haven't found the impetus to, to do that. But I don't think, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely not in the all is lost camp at all on this. I think there is, I think the, the kind of pressure will come from below and the pressure will come from local groups in, in all parties. And it will ultimately be irresistible that, you know, whether, the, whether the parties have agreed it or not, um, the activists and campaigners will be doing it, 
doing it anyway. And this, and this is always, Caroline Lucas always used to say this, that actually she wasn't in favor of electoral stitch-ups. When people are talking about progressive alliance, they always think of one candidate standing aside for another. And she said, you know, it, it, it doesn't, it's not a great look. Voters feel shortchanged. They feel like everything's already been decided before they got to the polls. They feel like there were conversations that, weren't, that didn't have them in, in it. And she was kind of much more of a fan of like really, really informal deals where the where energy just gathered behind one candidate because everybody was campaigning for that candidate. I mean, who doesn't agree with a Green New Deal, right? Obviously, I mean, it's, are they, it's a bit like, I worry sometimes it's a bit like Build Back Better. It might be one of those things that, that if we're not careful, it, it sometimes gets sort of rinsed of a lot of meaning yeah, yeah. and everybody seems to agree with it. So I think that can be problematic. I also worry that it's a bit sort of top down and mechanistic as an as an idea. It, it sometimes seems to imply that all that has to happen is that the state's got to give people lots of jobs in factories making wind turbines and spend all of this money on all of this stuff. And there won't be any downside in terms of how we have to alter the way we live. It'll all be win, win, win and jobs, 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 and everything will be OK. And clearly, what gets missed out if you if if you have the conversation in that way is a much richer conversation about things like the fact we have to tackle our obsession with economic growth. You know, a greener economy might be an economy in which lots and lots of people uh, are employed in more caring occupations than in the kind of parts of the economy that at the moment fuel the climate emergency of our carbon emissions and all of that. Um, there's a huge conversation, it seems to me, to have about green politics and about democratic participation and citizens' assemblies and all that, which the people in charge uh, of the, what's it called, CE, the climate, what's that bill called, which has the climate... Something I'm an ecological bill. emergency bill. Yeah, so that has that within it. But if, if, if you put all your, if, if you're not careful and you put all your eggs in the basket of well, everyone will work in factories making wind turbines, I'm not sure that gets you to the, to the heart of the issue and it, and it feels sort of politically convincing enough. But having, having said that, of course, you know, it's an absolutely necessary part of any, any political agenda that any party on the left's got to have, of course. Let's finish on uh, an upbeat seasonal note. You said we've kind of alluded to this, but let's just bring it out maybe quickly, Zoe, in terms of, you know, against all that doom and gloom and, you know, or not necessarily, what, you know, what, what excites you? What inspires you? You know, what keeps you going? Give us some highlights in the, in the Zoe sphere. In terms of politics? Yeah, yeah. Huh. I mean, that is, a, that is a good question. Can't you tell us yours first and I'll have a think about it. Oh, me. Well, the, the 80% of uh, in the Labour Party that back PR, I find that hugely uh, inspirational. You look under any rock, I think, in, in civil society and communities, there's more activity than, than ever. It's just not located alongside formal politics. I think there's yeah. so much going on, so much humanity, care, love, ingenuity, creativity. Um, but it's all outside of, you know, it's increasingly outside of formal politics. Yeah. And in a sense, that's the job of, of Compass, is to try and work out how we bend formal politics to support that stuff. And how do you get all of that informal, caring, loving, creative stuff into formal politics? Put those two things together and boom, you know, we might get somewhere. But that's, you know, that's the, that's the job I think we're doing. So what, what does that spark, Zoe? Um, yeah, I've remembered what's cheered me up in the past, you know, few months. I'm really cheered up by the new leadership of Unite. I'm cheered up by mm. union movements generally. I'm cheered up by kind of pop-up union ideas and 
what's it you know cross-pollination between kind of refugee and migrant groups and unions and activism on that score I think there's I think there's I think it's actually quite good I think it's much more radical than 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 I was expecting and I'm also cheered up by the fact I am quite cheered up by the implosion of the government because I think there was a kind of I, there was a genuine I had a genuine fear after 2019 that in the shape of Brexit they found their forever engine. They found the thing that could keep on giving them kind of, you know, energy and rhetoric and popularity forever. And, you know, it could get, it would just get worse. The, the situation on the ground would get worse and worse and worse, but they would, they would always have this perpetual enemy and it was always going to work for them rhetorically. Um, and and I'm, I've really enjoyed watching that, you know, they, people. The right does not have a political program. Um, it, it, if they had one, I'd be, I'd be more worried. But, but they really don't. Yeah. So, so that's. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not at all uncheerful. Good. Why are you not uncheerful, John? Oh, I've got loads of reasons to be, uh, to be cheerful. So I think something that's really obviously happened is that the pandemic, although it's awful and it continues to be awful that kind of let's all bake banana bread and learn German and isn't it wonderful? And, you know, the idea that some sort of uh, hair-shirted socialist nirvana lurked within lockdown. I mean, that was a sort of thing about a year, a year or a year and a half ago. I'm not talking about that. But what lockdown has made lots and lots of people think about is work, for example. You know, there's a huge, there are huge changes in the labour market now and people questioning what they do all day and whether they should be doing it and whether they ought to be doing something else. You know, the fact that... Um, shops closed down with awful consequences i'm not for people's employment and all that i'm not i'm not minimizing that in any way but that that's caused a huge conversation about cities you know so also in the absence of office workers what are cities for you know if they're not for buying and selling and people going in into work every day but we still want them to be a place where people gather and exchange ideas what's all you know what do we do with that so i think that i think there's lots and lots of things are sort of in play in a very fundamental way that weren't in play two or three years ago. I find that really, really exciting. I, one of the things I wrote down before this started was about the local elections that happened um, over the summer in May and the spectacle of parts of the home counties and the sort of suburbs, as we traditionally understand them, which suddenly uh, weren't voting Tory anymore and were voting for the Labour and the Lib Dems and the Green Party. You know, you saw this in places like Worthing, Oxfordshire, I think Surrey, all sorts of interesting things happen. I think there's a, we all we fixate a lot as political journalists on the red wall and all that quite rightly, but at the same time there's another part of the political alignment going alignment going on, which is that the English middle class, an increasing share of it, isn't like Terry and June anymore. I'm very old, so I can drop that reference point. You know, it's not inherently conservative and darling, I'm home and utterly reactionary. Very very interesting things are happening there, which is one of the reasons why the Conservatives lost the, the Chesham and Amersham by-election over the summer. So that that gives me. Lots and lots of cause for hope. I think lots and lots of things are in flux, you know. And the reason this government is suddenly in trouble, a lot of it is down to Boris Johnson's personality and, and the fact that inevitably he was going to be brought up short. But I think it's indicative of these, the risk of talking in the abstract, but, you know, it's indicative of these much more fundamental things, that things are shifting in a way that we don't yet understand. And I find that really inspiring. And the thing I always mention, which I find really, really inspiring, is people mostly outside the bounds of organized politics who are changing 
uh, their immediate surroundings, their communities in very, very fundamental ways. And in May, I went to Birmingham. I was meant to be covering the mayoral election between Liam Byrne for Labour and Andy Street for the Tories. And we just stopped covering it. And we talked to people in Birmingham who were doing amazing things. And one organisation we found was called the Witten Lodge Community Association, who had come to life to oppose the bulldozing of their estate about 20 or 30 years ago. And they now were this sort of amazing, are oh, this amazing catch-all organisation, which does all sorts of amazing things. they just taken control of the old swimming baths in Erdington in Birmingham, and they were turning it into a huge community centre with um, incubator space for people who wanted to start new businesses and meeting rooms. Uh, and they were look, going out of their way to try and get people to start the kind of businesses that might replace the big retail chains that were deserting the high street there. And it was just an amazing thing to see. And just, just half an hour spent in their company was immeasurably more inspiring than, than seven hours spent in the company of most mainstream politicians. So the, the goal of our politics is to get it orientated to those people, to support those people, to, you know, to facilitate those people, to kind of accelerate what they're doing. And, you know, in the new year, you're going to see lots from Compass coming out about how we get to our Progressive Alliance. We're going to kind of rebrand that and rename it and focus it differently. How do we change formal politics to work for those people in Birmingham and their counterparts across the rest of the country? Because... Uh, that's what inspires us and that's what, what moves us. So until then, thanks to John and Zoe. That was really feisty, unexpectedly so, and good fun. It's always um, like that. It's always like that. It's like the Guardian editorial room when you're you know, deciding, deciding the lines. Uh, the next podcast will be at six o'clock on Tuesday, the 11th of January, the first one of next year, when we'll be talking all things Progressive Alliance. Until then... Thank you, you too. Thank you, Francis. I hope you continue to get better, no, Francis. You didn't, splutter, you didn't splutter too much through that. Thanks as ever, Gabriel. Thanks enormously to everyone on the call. Thanks a lot. Take care. Thank you, Bye -bye. everybody. Thank, Thank you. you. So, if you like what you've heard today and want to be part of a much more equal, democratic and sustainable future, a good society, then visit us at compassonline.org dot uk forward slash podcast and you'll be able to join us live on future calls just like this one you can tweet me at neil n-e-a-l underscore compass or compass at compass office and if you've enjoyed this week's episode please give us a rating it will help us reach more listeners in the future and it's only fair that they know it's bloody complicated too <laughs> <laughs>